Federal employee whistleblower complaints are often investigated by the agency itself rather than by the Office of Special Counsel. This can speed up resolutions or end up with complaints going nowhere or even suppressed. Bob Tobias, professor in the key executive leadership program at American University, has looked into this question. He joins me now with some perspective. And, Bob, it seems that there is no one perfect way to deal with whistleblowers, but having the agency do it internally doesn't always work out, does it? It does not. Former President Trump in 2017 argued in an executive order that the Department of Veteran Affairs should be allowed to investigate the whistleblower complaints internally in the interest of resolving them faster and more efficiently. And then the executive order was later turned into a statute. But that approach, I think, um, runs into the real challenge of what it means to investigate internally because what it requires is a focused attention and support of political appointees who are willing to hear bad news, see bad news published in newspapers and on social media, accept responsibility for the bad news, and then take action to turn the bad news to good news. But let me just ask this. In some agencies, it is the inspector general's office that looks at whistleblower complaints, and we've seen that even at VA And so, therefore, you do have some independence there, and the inspector general doesn't care if the news is bad. Well, yes, theoretically, Tom. But when the – we do have a recent evidence of the DHS inspector general who suppressed over 10,000 DHS employee sexual assault um, complaints, and when it was discovered – Secretary Mayorkas created a new centralized process for processing employee complaints. But I ask, in the long term, will that work? Because maybe the next secretary of DHS will use the idea of um, centralized decision-making to suppress those complaints in the future. Right. So – then having an external body like the Office of Special Counsel, you run into the issue of just sheer workload, sheer time it takes. And, you know, as we've seen so many adjudicative types or investigative types of processes by federal agencies internally or externally just take so long. Well, I think the answer to that, Tom, is to beef up the is to beef up the Office of, of Special Counsel rather than to depend on the long-term, on political appointees meeting that high bar of allowing themselves to look bad. Um, While there may be individual political appointees who accept responsibility for the failure of those they lead, and more importantly, for their own failures, um, we can't depend on every political appointee over the long term to meet that bar. We're speaking with Bob Tobias, professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. And I guess it's understandable why some politicals would want to avoid this. There was a administrator of the GSA a number of years ago, I think early in the Obama administration, and a member of the scandal of the expensive Las Vegas conferences that GSA was doing. And it was a scandal. And you had a crooked bunch running this thing and taking junkets paid for out to Las Vegas to check the venue, you know, three and four times. And there was the famous picture of the guy with the wine glass in the bathtub and all of this. 
but it was the administrator that took the fall, even though this all occurred entirely before she even arrived at the agency. And so her career was sullied and her reputation to some degree, even though she had literally nothing to do with it. Well, that's true. Um, because what can happen in that kind of a situation is a culture of noncompliance can develop. And in a culture of noncompliance, the people in charge suppress any complaints and continue to behave as you just described. So the, in my view, the only way of managing that, and in, as in the case you pointed out, someone who was innocent but took the hit, is to encourage an outside investigative authority like the Office of Special Counsel to do its work but do it faster. Right, because really it was not fair for this person to take the hit for that. And she exposed it and said, we really made a big mistake here, which was gracious of her, but it really wasn't that person's mistake. And so that, again, you're saying mitigates in favor of external look at these events entirely. I, I think so, Tom. I think so. I, there isn't any evidence anywhere over the long term of successful looking internally at oneself by political appointees, finding fault and fixing that fault. But I want to get back to the inspector general question because, yes, IGs are also politically appointed, but their purpose in life is to have this external or at least objective outside of the agency chain of command view of things, no matter how bad they might be. So why can't IGs step up more here? They can. And they should, but it it only provides for me proof of the fact that no, we can't depend on every political appointee to be fault free, and the only way we can make sure that it doesn't occur is to have not only uh, is to have the office of special counsel be able to investigate problems in IG offices as well. Well, that question, I think, is probably going to be resolved not for quite a while because the whistleblower complaints come in, and uh, I think this is going to be something we're going to deal with for a while. Well, I, I think it is, but I think it's also true that when you have a, a, a over 2 million person workforce, there are going to be people who fail to follow the laws, rules, and regulations to make sure that these complaints get surfaced and an employee's career is not damaged for surfacing these problems. All right. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. 
but I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old and uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social 
Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.